0: All right, second Samuel chapter 11. Second Samuel chapter 11. We are in the midst of David's fall. Instead of going to fight against uh, the Ammonites with the rest of his army, David seeks relaxation at home. And this opens up the door for David to be exposed to serious temptation. And so, when the time comes to run, David instead drinks it in and has an affair with Bathsheba. Now, the affair or the suspicion of it might be known to a few servants in David's palace, uh, but most would be unaware. The king's business is the king's business, right? At least until David finds out that Bathsheba is pregnant. And instead of coming clean, David crosses farther over the line with a massive cover up. So, chapter 11, we begin in verse 5. It says, And the woman conceived and sent and told David and said, I am with child. So, this is after their tryst, their affair takes place in the palace. She goes home and she conceives and she tells David, I'm with child. I'm pregnant, man. Her affair would now be known by all, which means David's actions will become known too. And her sending word to David is basically saying, if I'm going down, you're going down. Why would this be a problem for a king? Well, because Israeli kings, they are not exempt from God's law. In Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, we read it last week, we'll read it again. It makes it very clear what happens to people in this situation. The man that commits adultery with another man's wife, even he that commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. And so if David does not do something, this would be the end for both of them. There's nothing she can do. He needs to do something or this will be the end for both of them. And so David is now faced with a choice, right? Now that you've been exposed, what are you going to do? He can either compound his sin by adding more sin to it or he can confess his sin and throw himself on God's mercy. David will later write in Psalm 51:17 after he repents, he'll write a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. I don't know about you, but I have made hard confessions in my life at times. Those are never easy things to do. But I have never regretted confessions made. I have always regretted the ones that I did not make. Always. I have never regretted a single one, even if it was painful to the individual I was confessing to. But I have always regretted the ones that I did not. And the reason is, is because it's always better to fall on God's mercy than to hope that somehow things just don't fall out bad. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, we read it in our scripture reading. It says, my little children, these things I write unto you so that you do not sin, so that you sin not. That's the goal, right? The goal is just don't blow it in the first place, right? That's, that's, the, that's the, the bar we set. That's the standard we have. We, you know, we don't use grace as a license for sin. But if we fall like David, we too are faced with a choice of compounding our sin or confessing our sin. Remember, 1 John 1.9 was one of the first verses I memorized as a Christian because that's what you do, right? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. An awesome, awesome, awesome promise. Good truth. It's attached to two other verses, though. The one that comes before it and the one that comes after. And so, with a beautiful promise that we often memorize, we ought to memorize the two that come one before it and one after it. First John 1.8 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That's the one I probably needed to memorize as much. <laughs> because, you know, we, well, no, 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 no I, I didn't really do anything wrong. You know, see, see, what really happened is, you know, you know, circumstances and they did this and we deceive ourselves, right? We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. When we get to that place and we say we have not sinned, no, 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 I can fix this. No, 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 no. It's not that bad. It's Or, you know, there are reasons. And, and therefore we don't confess. The Bible says that it, truth is not in us at that point in time. We are operating in unreality. We are operating in, in falsehood. We're operating in fairytale land. Verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Maybe in your marriage you've had arguments that go like this. Well, I wouldn't have done that if you hadn't have done fill in the blank. And maybe, but me, maybe just me. Maybe I'm the only jerk in the building. I remember distinctly, I was at a, a marriage class, and they brought up that topic. Your sin is your sin. And if you don't own up to your sin, You can never change. I remember I went home from that class and I had a lot of apologizing due to my bride because that was my go-to. My sin is your fault. See, my sin's not my fault. In fact, that makes it not really sin. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word's not in us. When I do that, I'm not operating on Scripture at all which says, hey, don't do this. You know, you know, famous words spoken by a famous woman in my house frequently. (laughs) When I respond a certain way, and she gets offended by that, and I say, "Well, you did this," she's like, "So that makes it okay for you to do it too?" I think, man, how do I always lose that fight? (laughs) But it's truth. So, that made it okay for you to escalate? 1 John 1.8 and one ten is a beautiful warning, just as 1 John 1.9 is a beautiful promise. A beautiful promise if we confess, and a beautiful warning to those of us who would think about compounding it. And th- lest we think, well, David didn't know that, he didn't have 1 John. True, but these are not just New Testament ideas. This has always been God's dealings with humanity. Proverbs 28:13, one of the most famous verses, I, I, my very first pastor probably quoted this verse more than any other verse in the whole Bible. In Proverbs 28:13, he said, "He who covers his sins shall not prosper. but whosoever confesses and forsakes his sins shall have mercy. He that covers his sins shall not prosper, but whosoever confesses and forsakes them shall have mercy." We read all throughout the Scripture that God gives grace to who? The humble, right? I I remember when this clicked for me. It was like, oh, the humble. What does the humble mean? Well, I I can give you the description. If you have kids, you know the description of not humble, right? Because you confront them with something, you go, you don't understand. You know, not my fault. You know, they did this. I mean… And the problem is, though, is that, you know, while we see it and we go, "Ugh, that's not good, that's pride, that's this. If we don't ever deal with it in our own hearts, then we become adults who act that way too. God gives grace to the humble. I remember when that clicked in my mind. It's like, okay, if I come clean with God and I, I just let it out, my like, God, I, I, I blew it again. Like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a mess. Like, like I'm, I'm not getting this right. I, I need help. There's grace for that. But in the minute that I begin to harden my heart, and, no, 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 well, I only did it because of this, or da, 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 or, you know, well, I can fix this on my own. God resists the proud, and then I am left on my own. So I, I would say to you, before we even get into how David compounds his sin, if, if you have fallen in some way, please bring it into the light. I know it's scary, but the only time we don't bring it into the light is because we don't want our deeds to be exposed. And the problem is, is exposing them is how we find wholeness. It's how we find healing. It's how we find forgiveness. It's how we find change. So please don't try to cover it up. You need grace. You need mercy. And if you hide in the dark, it will only make things worse. Now, while David later would confess a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. If David was broken over sin and came to the Lord, he knows this would have been… I could have avoided this whole mess. But David isn't broken or contrite here. So, he devises a plan to cover up their sin. Back in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 6. So, David sent to Joab, saying, send me Uriah the Hittite. Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah was come unto him, David demanded of him how Joab did and how the people did and how the war prospered. By the way, this is where things begin to just start breaking down when you try to cover up, right? Time is ticking, all right? And, and last I checked, babies are on a timer, right? At some point, as David is going through this, he's not doing the math. You know, it's not like, you know, uh, you, you know Uriah just catches a plane and he's like, yeah, I'll be there in an hour, you know? This is travel likely on foot or at the very best in some type of wheeled thing back then that, you know, was not the speed rail, did not go on the Autobahn. At some point, you know, someone down the road, if David really thinks about this, he's got to realize someone's going to do the math and be like, well, that's a really big big boy for a preemie. Looks just like you, David. David has him sent home, and when Uriah, verse 7, was come unto him, David demanded of him. The word there, demanded, is probably a little bit too strong, but the idea is it's, it, he makes this an official meeting. You know, David said, well, the reason I sent for him is because I need a report. I need a report on what's going on. He demanded of him how Joab did and how the people did and how the war prospered. Now, as one of David's high-ranking soldiers, Uriah would know the situation at Rabbah better than others, and so this would seem like a normal thing, you know? Can't have Joab come back. I need somebody reliable. I don't just want some messenger. I need one one of my top guys. Tell me how things are going. Tell me how the troops are doing. Tell me how the war is going. David acts like nothing is out of the ordinary. He pretends things were normal and right when nothing was normal or right. And that's the problem with covering up my sin. The idea, the idea that things can go on as normal even though I did something horribly wrong. That's the mindset. That I can somehow, I can make this work. I can, I can fix this. That it's okay to do what I did and not have to deal with it before God or before others. Because that's the truth of it. <laughs> maybe, maybe you've not experienced this and you're just better people than I am. But I know when I'm in a fix not quite like this, but in a situation where I've got to come clean to somebody, I don't come clean to God because that means if I come clean to God, He's going to make me come clean to the somebody. Yeah. And so I stay from, away from the Lord. I keep, I keep that thing. I don't, I don't want to talk to God. You know, the Lord's like, you know, hey, you want to spend some time with me in the Word? No, because you're going to want to talk to me about this. And then when you talk to me about this, you're going to make me go talk to somebody about this. And I'm not ready to do that yet. And so we stay in the dark. We know if we're going to deal with it before God, we have to deal with it before others too. And so we reject both and move on. You see, in what David's thinking here is you know what? <laughs> I, if I play this right, Uriah goes home, reunites with his wife after our meeting's over. And while the timing might be a bit off, everyone's going to assume the child is Uriah's. And everything works out fine. Now, While that's David's thinking, we can look at this and know that's short-sighted, selfish, and foolish. Sin never goes away, or just goes away, for two reasons. (laughs) Number one, you know you did it. And number two, our sin does affect others. Numbers 32-33, a a verse that's often quoted, we don't always recollect the uh, context of it, be sure your sin will find you out. I always, every time I try to look for that in the Bible, I think it's got to be somewhere more famous than Numbers 32. But Numbers 32, verse 23, the context here is of the two and a half tribes who said, well, we don't want to settle in the promised land. We want to have this land on the other side of Jordan. And of course, that created a problem because they're saying, oh, so you don't want to go and go and take the land with the rest of us. You, you've got this land and you'll be good. No, no, no. that's not, no, We're going to go fight with you, every single one of us. Our, our families will stay here. Obviously, probably leave some… The Scriptures are really clear that no men of war stayed behind. So, I mean, they were going to be vulnerable. So, no, no, no. We're going to leave them there and we're going to come fight We're going to, until the whole land is conquered. And so, this is the context of this conversation where Moses is warning them. He says to them, if you're going to do this thing and you're going to do that, then fine. You can have this land. But verse 23 says, but if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord and be sure your sin will find you out. If you give some half commitment, if, if somehow you hold back, if you don't commit all the troops, whatever, yeah, we may still go in and take the land and, and everything might work out fine. You might think, we did it, we pulled it off. We, we got the scam, we got out of this free. And he goes, don't think that. Don't think that at all. Because the Lord will see it and your sin will find you out. In James chapter one, verses 15 through 16 this progression of sin that, you know, we've referenced this a couple times the last two weeks, in James chapter 1, 15 and 16, it says, then when lust is conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. Don't, do not err, the King James says. It means don't make this mistake, my beloved brothers. Don't make this mistake, James says. The only solution to sin is confession and forgiveness, or no confession, and some type of discipline or judgment. That's it. There's no other options on the cards. It's, no, no, I'm going to go with option will, and we're going to fix this, and I'm going to make it work. That's not an option. (laughs) And that's why the Scripture says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves (laughs) when we think there is another option. You see... Here's the truth of it. David didn't start this originally intending to murder Uriah or even to marry Bathsheba. But because cover-ups don't work, they usually lead to further cover-ups to protect the first one. Lies to protect the lies that are protecting the lies, which compounds our sin. Now, to encourage David's desired result, he dismisses Uriah with a dinner gift. Verse 8, after the report comes in, David sent, said to Uriah, Go down to your house, wash your feet. You know, take a load off, man. And so Uriah departed out of the king's house, and there followed him a mess, a gift of food from the king. <laughs> the phrase, wash your feet, it, it's what a person does when they're going to relax and enjoy a meal. I mean, I'm not saying we don't wash our feet, we take showers here, but generally speaking, because of how we interact, we don't need to do that in the same way they would need to if you're going to put your feet up. And that's what that means, wash your feet. It means you're, going to, you're not going to be doing any work. In that society, when you wash the feet, it's because you're going to sit down and you're going to eat. You're going to sit down and, and, and have a time of relaxation and rest, and what David is hoping, that it leads to a physically intimate moment with his wife. And so, he sends food. Enjoy a meal, man. Take, take a load off. Relax. You know, if David was going to do Uriah true honor, he would have invited him to eat at his own table in the palace. But David's about deception tonight. He's not about honor. Uriah, on the other hand, is a man of honor, and so he doesn't go home. Look at verse 9. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and went not down to his house. And when they had told David, saying, Uriah didn't go down into his house. I mean, David's got other people involved in this plot. David said unto Uriah, did you not come from your journey? Why then did you not go down into your house? And Uriah said unto David, the ark and Israel and Judah, they abide in tents. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go into my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife as you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. The door to the pal- David's palace would have been probably the, the guardhouse, the entrance area. Most likely where David's royal officials or his personal bodyguards slept when they were off duty. And he just camps out there with all the other servants because that's what he sees himself in. I came home on a military mission and now I need to get back on my main mission. He says, you know, the ark's out there. I mean, this is interesting because the ark is not something that Israel normally took into battle. This is the other thing that kind of blows me away is that, you know, why was David so opposed to being out there leading his armies against Ammon when he he had the ark sent out there to to help lead them? I mean, why would David not want to be as close to the Lord's presence as possible? That's the ark of his presence. Something's going on here, you know? Hebrews 2.1 talks about it. It says, let us therefore take the more earnest heed, lest at any time we should let things slip. That's King James' talk for this. We don't naturally move forward on our own. <laughs> our natural way to move is backwards. Our natural way is to drift. It's like, it's like if you're out at the ocean, you know, and you're in the water having a good time. Me and Bev, we, we went to one of the islands here on the west coast for our 25th anniversary, and we went out to the ocean, had a blast, but we kept having to drag ourselves back to our, where our hotel was at, you know, where, the area, because before we knew it, we are looking up going, I don't recognize any of these buildings. The, the current takes you along. Our natural tendency is to drift, to go away from the Lord. If you want to backslide, it's real easy. Just do Nothing. That's your natural tendency. It's my natural tendency. Jesus said in John fifteen five about abiding. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. So staying close to Jesus requires being intentional. <laughs> it requires investment into our relationship with the Lord. And so I don't know why David's keeping his distance. We know other people who followed the Lord at a distance didn't work out well for them either. Well, Uriah's explanation to David, shall I then go into my house? Well, all these are out there on the mission. I don't think Uriah intends this as a rebuke to David, but it does put David's desire for relaxation in a bad light, does it not? I mean, someone who is after God's glory, basically, as Uriah is saying here, the ark's out there, man. Someone who's after God's glory and is loyal to his companions, I love what he says at the end, I will not do this thing. In his mind, they would not do this thing either. So again, I don't necessarily think Uriah is trying to rebuke David, But, I mean, that's how it comes out. David, i got to get back on mission. And I'm sure (laughs) the words to David are probably, yeah, that's probably where I should be. And thus, David's sin is exposed without Uriah having a clue about what's going on. In Uriah's words without telling David, he's saying, you've been selfish, disloyal, and ungodly, David. I imagine the Holy Spirit's working on David saying, this is how you're supposed to be. David, bring this into the light. Confess your sin and repent. Talk to Uriah right now. Yeah, it's gonna be hard and it's not gonna be easy sailing moving forward. But if you bring this out into the open, we can get past all this. Instead, David doubles down. Look at verse 12. And David said to Uriah, tarry here today also and tomorrow and I will let you depart. The idea here is what he's telling him. Is the word there, depart, let you depart, means I will dispatch you. In other words, with orders for Joab. I don't know what I, I, want, I want Joab to do. Based on your report back to me, I'm not sure yet the, what I want Joab to do, so I, I need a couple days. So stay here for today, stay for tomorrow, and then I'll dispatch you with your orders to Joab. Again, David tries to play the situation off as normal. I'm still figuring out what I want Joab to do next. So, you know, don't worry. I'll get you back into the fight, you loyal, godly man. He's pretending like, yeah, I, I get it, I get it, Uriah. I'll get you back out there. Don't you worry. But I'm not sure what to do yet, so give me a a couple more days. The truth is, David plans that night to give him the true guest of honor treatment in the hopes of getting him drunk enough that he'll compromise his convictions and go home to sleep with Bathsheba. Verse 13, and when David had called him, when he invited him, He did eat and drink before him, and he made him drunk. Obviously, he didn't force him to drink, but the idea here is that he kept the alcohol flowing in the hopes that he would go and forget his convictions. I like what David Guzik said. He said, David was drunk with lust when he slept with Bathsheba. He hoped making Uriah drunk with wine would bring the same result. And yet, it says he went not down. At that at evening he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. Uriah's resolve remains despite his intoxicated state. (laughs) Some commentators have suggested that he was on to David, but the Scriptures give no hint of this at all. It's very likely that Uriah was just a very principled man and someone who values loyalty very highly when I think about David eating and laughing and talking of old times with his friend all the while, trying to get him drunk to cover up his sin, my gut twists. This affair he had was a bad enough betrayal, but this, this one was just as bad because none of it was real. It was all a lie. And that's why the Bible has such strong language about lying. The word truth in the Bible, as I mentioned this morning, it almost always means that which is real, that which is genuine. A lie is the opposite of that. It's a fabrication, an unreality, something phony or fake, and therefore a deep betrayal of trust. And as that lie must be protected, eventually it must be populated with even more lies and betrayal. And so in verse 14, David doubles down again. And it came to pass in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, set you, Uriah, in the foremost of the hottest battle and retire you from him that he may be smitten and die. The idea is, David says, put, put him in the, the fiercest part of the battle where he's going to face the toughest Ammonite soldiers and then call the retreat when the battle's really rough. Command the rest of the army to retreat, leaving him exposed, that he may be smitten and die. David does not mince the words. I want him dead, and this is how I want you to do it. And thus David now adds to his adultery and to his lying murder. And in the ultimate betrayal, he sends the execution order in Uriah's hand. You ever wondered I think weird things like this. But you ever wondered, like, where you see a car and it barely miss you, and you think to yourself, if I had maybe just hit the gas a little bit earlier, I'd be in an accident? Like, have you ever wondered, like, I think about these things all the time. Like, maybe if I was here five minutes earlier or five minutes later, like, I'd have been, you know, this would have happened, or, you know, you think of all the things that could be, right? What if Uriah just opens up the letter? I mean, you hold. Literally, your whole life's different at that point. It says a lot about Uriah's character that David knows his friend won't look at the orders, that Uriah would faithfully perform his duty even unto death. It also says a lot about what a person will do to cover up their sin. Compound or confess, that's the decision David is constantly faced with every time God thwarts his plans. But David keeps choosing to compound his sins. And so we get the sad story here in verses 16 and 17. And it came to pass when Joab observed the city that he assigned Uriah a place where he knew that valiant men were, Ammon's elite soldiers. He assigned Uriah the place to hit that part of the wall. And the men of the city, they went out. So the Ammonites came out to actually initiate an attack, a sortie against Joab's troops laying siege. And they fought with Joab, and there fell some of the people, the servants of David, and Uriah the Hittite died also. We're going to get more details on exactly what happened later on, but for now it just tells us that David finally succeeds. He finally gets one step of the cover-up fulfilled. You know, before David became king, he refused to kill the man who hunted his life. And he swore that he would be different than the man who threatened and murdered anyone who stood in the way of what he wanted. And yet here, David becomes just as bad as Saul, if not worse. This is indeed one of the lowest points in David's life, a true fall from grace, because he becomes the same as the tyrant before him. Remembered are none of the mercies that he would have loved to have had from King Saul. None of the peace, anything, anything, even just, you know, David at one point, he says, just leave me alone. And Saul wouldn't even give him that. None of that's remembered here as he brutally takes this man's life, even though he doesn't wield the sword. In light of this, why do we say that David is then a man after God's heart? Because this seems pretty bad, and it is. The reason the Scriptures say that David is a man after God's heart is because this isn't how the story ends. Now, it is going to get darker before David emerges into the light. But the difference between David and Saul is David didn't remain in the dark forever. This brings up a truth that many refuse to accept. We are all, in fact, Saul. Saul. We are all Saul, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's another side to this truth, though. It's that God is not willing that Saul should perish, but that Saul should repent. And so time and time again, God sent prophets, messengers, individuals to Saul to call out his sin, to urge him to repent, to change. And so the truth is this, while we all may be Saul. When we choose to repent like David did, the Lord does forgive us, and he begins the work of creating in us a clean heart so that we can be more like him. There is no such thing as an individual who is after the heart of God who's never been Saul. (laughs) No such thing. And so while we can fault David for being at this point after Saul did all that to him, the truth is, we are no different. And so, if God can welcome me back, He can welcome David back too. I have heard many times from the lips of men when I've shared the gospel with them, so you're telling me that the criminal in jail who repents of what he did and puts his trust in Jesus will go to heaven, but I, the good father, the good husband, the good citizen, and the good worker, will go to hell because I did not. And the answer to that question is yes, as offensive as that may be. Because no one is good. Why do bad things happen to good people? It's an illogical question. There's no good people. First John chapter 1, verses 5 through 7 gives hope to the blackest of hearts, to the wickedest of men and women. First John 1 5 says, This then is a the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. Unless you can achieve that somehow on your own, then you cannot approach Him. The Scripture tells us that God dwells in unapproachable light. He's perfect. None of us can measure up to that. And so what it comes down to is not being able to be like God in that sense on my own, to be light, to have no darkness in me. It's to come to terms with who we really are and to come clean with God. Verse 6 says, if we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, then we lie and do not the truth. We're not practicing the truth. In contrast, if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. That word cleanses is in the present tense. It means it is continually washing us, continually. <laughs> David is a man after God's heart because he came back to the light. Despite the knowledge of what he had done and how vile it was, David refused to be defined by what he did in the past, and he trusted God to make him someone different in the present. And God did, because God abounds in mercy. Now, David is not there yet. And so, in 2 Samuel here, we say goodbye to a man of far better character than David at this point in David's life. But it's not a forever goodbye. We will see Uriah again for he was a Gentile who loved God, was loyal to the Lord, his king, and his friends. And I believe someone who will be at the front of the line to receive his reward for faithfulness. I imagine when Uriah got to heaven and found out why he was there, there were probably some tears to wipe away. But I can promise you this. Jesus never gave him such orders or such notes to carry. And whatever Jesus gave to him, he knew he could trust. And if you've been betrayed, listen. Know this. The Lord will never betray you. There's always one you can trust in. Verse 18 The deed is done, so Joab sent, verse 18, and told David all the things concerning the war. And he charged the messenger, saying, when you have made an end of telling the matters of the war unto the king, and if it be so that the king's wrath arise, and he say unto you, why did you approach so near into the city when you did fight? Do you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who smote Abimelech, the son of uh, Jerobasheth? Here, Jerobbal is the name that is the original name. I don't want know why they call him Jerobesheth here. Did not a woman cast a piece of a millstone upon him from the wall that he died in Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Well, then if he gets mad at you, tell him, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David, it actually turns out, ends up murdering dozens of other Israeli men in this gambit to murder Uriah. Many other men die in this whole thing. And so Joab knows that David's going to be upset about the report of the loss of troops. And Joab knew David well enough to know how the speech would go. When the guy comes in, he explains what happened. He goes, we lost a lot of men because this was what happened. That David, his normal reaction is going to be, Joab, what was he thinking? Did he forget what we learned in War 101 in college? Everybody learns a story, and he would quote the lesson about how from the war in Judges 9.53, where a woman killed, which is the most worst thing that could ever happen to you as a woman to kill you. You've come a long way, ladies. Where a woman killed Gideon's son. He was the very first self-proclaimed proclaimed king of Israel. His name was Abimelech. And the reason that they did is because it says he came up to knock down the door of the tower that they're all hiding in the city, and she just dropped a rock on his head game over. This is basic training, Joab. So, Joab's out when he anticipates David's eruption in anger for these bad battle tactics, is make sure you tell David that Uriah died in that assault. So, verse 22, the messenger gives his report on how Uriah died. So, the messenger went, and he came and showed David all that Joab had sent him for. And the messenger said unto David, Surely the men prevailed against us; they overwhelmed us. The reason the casualties were so high—they overwhelmed us. They came out unto us in the field, and we were upon them under the entering of the gate. In other words, the battle started off good for us. You know, they came out, and we pushed them back, and we had advanced so as so far as to get into the gatehouse. But the shooters shot from off the wall upon your servants, and some of the king's servants be dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Thus, here we see how this man died. They advanced all the way into the gatehouse of the city, and if you've ever studied ancient gatehouses, they existed for the purpose of funneling troops. It was a narrow area, you know, and and you would funnel troops in there, and they'd just pelt you from the top of the wall with projectile devices. In this case, this would be a killing zone for their archers. And so we learn that it was in a moment When Uriah thought he might be winning the city for his king, for his friend, that Joab called the retreat and left Uriah and the other men with him to be slaughtered in a killing zone with arrows. I would ask David how he slept at night knowing this, but the Scriptures tell us he didn't. (laughs) In Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4, where after David repents. He talks about that time. He says, when I kept silence, my bones waxed old through all my roaring all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me and my moisture was turned into the drought of summer. In Psalm 38.3, David repeats this. He says, there is no soundness in my flesh because of your anger, neither is there any rest in my bones because of my sin. I don't think David was getting sleep. I think this was probably one of the worst years of David's life. And thus Proverbs 28.13 is true. He who covers his sin... Shall not prosper, right? God knows how this works. Well, David's not out of the woods yet. The, the whole cover up's not complete yet. Verse 25. Well then David sent unto the messenger, said unto the messenger, You shall set, thus shall you say unto Joab, Let not this thing displease you, be evil in your eye. For the sword devours one as well as another. I get it, Joab, men die in war. You know, when David says this to him, you know, let not this be evil in your eye, I don't think he was saying, Joab, you know, I know you might be questioning what the morality of what I did. Joab I probably is not questioning the morality at all. Joab himself was a murderer. So I'm not sure David's referring to that. I think he's referring to the setback in battle, because the truth is this loss would have emboldened the Ammonites to fight harder, and it would have discouraged the Israeli troops, which would make Joab's job more difficult. It's more like I think David expects Job to think, you better have a good reason for this, buddy, because that was a stupid move. You made my job harder. And so David, I think, is saying, hey, there's a reason. I got my reasons. I think you of all people, should understand that. The sword devours one man as well as another. People die we're still going to win this thing. Make your battle more, more strong against the city and overthrow it, and you encourage him. It's funny, the message he even gives, it's got code language in there because make your battle stronger. Do better, Joab. Like it's not David's fault. So the messenger's going to be not know this at all. When the orders come down, Joab's going to tell him and say, listen, we're not going to do that again. We're going to do this from now on. And David's in the clear. And surely David is relieved to hear this news. But again, his work's not done if he's to successfully cover up the affair because the child still co- is still coming and he needs to legitimize the child's birth. So verse 26, and when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when the morning was past, David sent and fetched her to his house, and she became his wife and bare him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Notice in verse 26, it does not even give her name. Scripture reminds us that she was a married woman. It reminds us that even though David seemingly gets away with this, he did not. Someone knew that she was someone else's wife. Now, the typical time for mourning is seven days. The phrase here where it mentions when the morning was past, which the word there, past, means When she crossed over the threshold of those seven days or whatever, something around seven days, as soon as she crossed over that threshold, that's when David takes this next action. He sent and he fetched her. The word here, fetched, it just means to guide someone to an area. David doesn't waste any time on his next move because he knows the clock is ticking. Right after her mourning officially ends, he invites her to the palace to make a proposal. And he tells her, the only way we get out of this alive is if you become my wife. And then everyone sees the child as as mine. Correctly, but for the correct timing and all that kind of stuff. And David, Bathsheba agrees. And so she became his wife. And she bare him a son. The phrase here that she bare him a son is the same exact language that is used for every other of David's children when they're born, which the writer's giving to us here to indicate to us that the cover up worked. Everyone viewed it as Oh wow, what a blessing. You know, she lost her husband in brutal war and now she's married the king and now they're having a child you know, and, and everything's gonna be okay because the child would not carry on David's name but according to Levitical law, she would carry on, he would carry on the name of Uriah, the family of Uriah. David's doing a, a good deed for her. That's how everyone would view it. He's being that Leverite brother, you know, and he's not a relative, but he's coming alongside and raising her status and raising up seed for Uriah. That's how everyone would see it. No one, no one would suspect any evil doing on David's part or Bathsheba's part. No one suspected an affair. And yet, can we really say it worked? When the last words of the chapter are, but the thing that David had done displeased was evil in the eyes of the Lord. It may, what David did, it may have not been evil in Joab's eyes, may not have been evil in David's eyes, and maybe even not possibly in Bathsheba's eyes. We have no clue on her perspective. But it was evil in God's eyes, and thus we have the end of Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen. Or at the beginning of Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen. Again, he who covers his sins shall not prosper. But whosoever confesses and forsakes them shall have mercy. I've quoted that verse quite a few times, and the reason is is because it's important. The word prosper there—it's not live long and prosper. The prosper here is not be rich, not even be healthy. The word prosper here, it means to advance, to make progress, to move forward. He who covers his sins cannot continue moving forward. You're going to start moving backwards. I can cover up my sin perfectly. I can pretend to move forward. But it will all be a sham because that will always lack spiritual progress it will always be just a slab of mud dressed up like chocolate cheesecake. You might have the decorations. Server might even bring it out with a smile. But the reality is, if you bite into it, it is not what you think it is. It is not moving forward. Now, instead of covering up our sin, let's live out the end of Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen. But whosoever confesses and forsakes them their sins shall have mercy. What's mercy? Well, it's not getting what you deserve. What did David deserve? Death. What did Bathsheba deserve? Death. But God would have offered them better than that if they had come clean. Because when we confess and forsake our sin, we find mercy. Would have everything been easy? No siree. Sin has consequences. But they would have not gotten what they deserved. They would have experienced mercy. Mercy also in the Old Testament has another idea, God's loyal love. They would have experienced God's love. Instead, David repeatedly in the penitential Psalms talks about the heavy hand of God upon him, the absence of the presence of God in his life, feeling far from God, and not being able to move forward at all. What we have in David's life is a lost year because he covered up his sin. No forward progress at all. Let's not do that. Let's live out 1 John 1:9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not only does he forgive us, but he begins to do surgery. The word cleanse is a medical term. It means to go into the wound and begin to heal it, to begin to do surgery on it. To, It's actually the word we get like to cauterize a wound. God will begin, if we confess our sins, not just to forgive us, but to will begin to heal us and change us and make us more like Him. Doesn't that sound better than not moving forward? <laughs> it sure does. Let's pray. Lord, we see the standard. Your you, servant John said... These things are written to you that you sin not. So, Lord, we get it. And that's our goal that we're shooting for. But, Lord, we, we also recognize that we do fail. We sin. Lord, Lord, if we say we have not sinned or we have no sin, then, Lord, we're either deceiving ourselves or we're calling you a liar. So the reality is we do fail still. John's writing to, to believers, to us. So the good news, Lord, is and we're so thankful for it, is that we have an advocate. You're our advocate. You who never fail. And you long to show us mercy, to forgive us, and to begin that work of cauterizing the wound, healing us, and changing us, Lord. Or teach us to run to your mercy. And even now, Lord, there may be some who are saying, Lord, I'm so sorry. Lord, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I confess it and I want to forsake it. I I choose to leave this behind and to walk in the light again. Lord, would you show them mercy and would you give them the courage to talk to whoever they need to talk to. Lord, that their lives might be lived in the light where we experience that mercy and grace and forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen.